What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Off the Record. We love Off the Record, and you should love Off the Record. Why should you love Off the Record? Because they're there to help. They're there to help you. They're there to help you stay out of trouble. They're there to help you uh, exit the system whereby the government and insurance companies extract money from you, citizen, just for going a little fast. You don't want to deal with that. Never, ever, ever plead guilty to a moving violation. That is the easiest money that you will ever feed into a system unnecessarily. Instead, you could just use off the record. They are an amazing service that helps you get those points from a moving violation off of your record. They do that by fighting those tickets on your behalf. You don't even have to really do anything beyond inform them that you got a ticket in the first place. You just go to offtherecord.com slash TST or download the Off The Record app and use code TST10. And then you have those accounts made, right? And then if you get a ticket, you just take a photo of that ticket or scan that ticket, send it to Off The Record. They take care of the rest. They will pair you up up with a qualified attorney in the jurisdiction where you got the ticket, and they'll fight that ticket for you. You don't have to go to court. They'll go to court for you. You don't have to meet with a prosecutor. They'll meet with the prosecutor for you. They'll deal with it. And then in almost every instance, and I mean the vast, vast majority of instances, they will get those points off of your record, and you don't have to do anything. You didn't even know it happened. It's just poof. Dunzo. In fact, if they can't get the points off your record, they're so confident that they can that if they can't, it's a money back guarantee. But you want to have your account ready. That way, if you get pulled over, you don't panic. You're not, what am I going to do? I can't afford this. Freak out, anxiety attack. You have off the record in your back pocket. You got the app on your phone. You got the account on the computer. Offtherecord.com slash TST or code TST10 on the app will save you 10% off all legal services that you book through off the record. Great folks, kind folks, and I get emails all the time from folks who have used them, and they're like, oh my God, this actually did work as well as you said it did. It's amazing. Off the record is the jam, and we love them. Code TST10 on the app, people. Alrighty, folks, today it's a very special day because a really, really talented human being is joining us all the way from France. Mr. David Twig is an author, uh, an engineer, a, a project lead on some very cool cars, uh, including, uh, not, not least of which, was the Alpine A110, the modern reinterpretation. He also writes for the Intercooler. Uh, we talk about some of the things that you guys may not know know uh, that it, it, what goes into the development of a car, how pennies get pinched, how priorities get shifted, how decisions get p- passed through meetings. Uh, we run some of the existing conundrums of our day past David, and he gives his input on maybe why things were done certain ways, why certain decisions were made. It's so interesting. Um, his book, Inside the Machine, is available now. Everybody should buy it. Both Zach and I read it, and it is amazing 
look inside how cars get developed. Uh, we have a link in the show notes to buy David's book, and everybody should and read it. It is mandatory reading, and we're very happy to have him. This is a super interesting show. David Twig is on the Smoking Tire podcast. I hear there's an echo in uh, in all of England, actually. I hear it's the whole country. <laughs> Well, I'm actually speaking to you guys from sunny France. So I'm, oh. based in, I'm based in France, so um, yeah, just across the channel. Perfect. Without okay. Well, then I guess that echo in England thing is really I called him British before, and he's like, I, I was born in Ireland. I was like, yeah, yeah. Good start. <laughs> yeah, this is going well. Sorry, good. I'm really pumped to be on the number one Canadian podcast. I'm in <laughs> Well done. Um... <laughs> All right. Well, we are we exist now. This is great, David Twig. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us from France today, and it's uh, the evening for you. So you're probably what two bottles of wine and uh, and a wheel of cheese deep at this point. Uh, I am a half a cup of coffee, coffee deep, Matt. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you and Zach. How are you guys uh, doing? Good, good. The um, we both read uh, your book Inside the Machine, and uh, and. Unfortunately, we shared a copy, but I'll buy another just for fun. <laughs> I'll make sure to I'll buy another, and we'll we'll give it away to uh, to a fan who finds it uh, finds the idea interesting. And uh, of course, you write for the Intercooler, and I really like your writing. That's where Zach found you and uh, went to the book, and then I read it as well. And man, you've had uh, you've had a career, haven't you? Well, I, I, I guess I have, and I gotta really say thanks to Zach for picking up on the the book and um, recommending it to you guys. And uh, I was I was actually listening to that episode where Zach was praising it and uh, doing his best to pronounce all these weird French names. Doing a good job. <laughs> of it, um, so thanks to Zach. Well, one of the I mean, one of the things that that stood out to me. I mean, obviously, uh, the book for someone who does uh, what we do. You know, it's uh, it's hard to uh, when you drive a car, either you like it or you don't. Do you like something about it? You don't like something about it. And it's always kind of hard to remember that there are humans, you know, and there's this giant sort of system behind that car. And um, decisions are, are are made in sort of series, endless series of meetings and so many people and so many inputs and so many priorities. And I think this book really helps to humanize that process. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that, Matt, because the, the title Inside the Machine, right, is kind of reflect that a little bit. The, the industry is a machine, you know. Some of these bigger companies are well over 100,000 employees. And it is a big industrial machine, lots of money, lots of profitability talk. But exactly as you say, behind it, there are men and women designing every little nut, bolt, and washer on your car. And, you know, the cars I've been lucky enough to be involved with, when I look at them, I, I don't see the car. I see the taillight that Trevor did. I see, <laughs> you know, that suspension that Matt did. I remember, you know, the guy who did that switch gear and the, 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 the fight we had about it. So I just see the people, and I wanted to get across a little sense of that, yeah. And I want to. I do want to come back to that because the the other thing that um, struck me about your career, uh, particularly as told through this book, is that you you know you were you're born in Ireland, you uh, but you very quickly find yourself in Japan, and yeah. and and literally working um, and and doing a very difficult job in a completely different language, 
Um, and then having to do it again when you go back to to France. And so, you know, that that to me, learn, having a hard job to begin with, speaking the language of engineering, but also the language of corporations, and having to do it in languages not your own twice seems incredibly difficult. And, you know, I think... I just I was I was just so lucky with my career because I joined Nissan as you said uh, early 90s 1992 you know straight out of college uh, you know fresh faced kid with an electronics engineering degree and I was recruited by Nissan now at the time the early 90s Nissan were expanding overseas right so they were actually quite a an outward looking Japanese company so they first of all established an R&D center in Detroit um, they'd obviously been already producing cars in the US for a long time and they decided they needed a factory and R&D capabilities in Europe and hired a bunch of local kids like myself. Um, and it was a really exciting time in the Japanese car industry, maybe a little bit like we saw with the South Korean makers a couple of years back. And yeah, you're right. I was very lucky to get the chance to go to Japan a few years later. So here was this kid, you know, out of the small town in Ireland. And I find myself flying into Narita Airport and going through these crazy places in Japan to uh, to lead a development team in uh, in Nissan's R&D center in Yokohama, yeah. Landing in Tokyo is very intimidating, isn't it? It's such it's an enormous place as you're flying over it. You're like, where am I? And this was long before Google Maps and everything. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even now when you fly, now, what I love about flying to Tokyo is it's one of those places where you land and you realize, like, I'm in a foreign country. If, if you're right. a Westerner, right? It, it's not like anywhere else. And in the early 90s, it certainly wasn't. There wasn't yet McDonald's and Starbucks in every uh, corner. You weren't going to find someone who spoke English. You couldn't read anything. And it was it was a hell of an adventure just, just to visit the country. And then actually leading a development team, developing a car for the first time. When I was a kid. I was only in, like, in my early 30s. Um, that was a, kind of a double adventure. Yeah, I mean, you, you got pretty far pretty fast uh in terms of your your age and what your your rank and responsibilities were i mean you were right in the in in what became kashka is it Ka- americans can't pronounce it is it kashkai it is kashkai right don't worry about it nobody can pronounce the name of this guy can we just so. talk about yeah. the name Ka- what was the meeting like where the best possible answer was kashkai <laughs> well but it's not an accident that the version of the car sold in North America is called Rogue Sport, right? Yeah. You can actually <laughs> You're very practical people in America. So yeah, they um, knew they're like they're yeah. not going to get it. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was one of those naming conventions. It was a concept car, but when the concept car was shown in Frankfurt, it actually stuck. If people liked it, but really nobody can pronounce it. Um, but yeah, it it was a. I was really lucky because at that time, when I joined Nissan, it was still seven years before the whole Nissan Alliance thing, Carlos Ghosn and all of those, you know, pretty, pretty seismic events. Um, And Nissan was a very traditional company, right? To get ahead, it was time, it was seniority, you bided your time, you worked your way up through the corporate ladder. But when Carlos Ghosn came in 1999, all of that went out of the window. So all of this seniority rules about being promoted, getting to a certain grade, having to be a certain age. Gone basically said, no, we're going to promote people on talent. And for whatever reason, I got pushed up the ranks. 
uh, and found myself in the position of basically chief vehicle engineer, which is what Nissan calls someone when they give you, okay, dude, you, you now get to play with a whole car. Rather than just bits and pieces or modules of a car, we're going to give you a whole car. Um, yeah, and I think I, I was 31, I think, when I went, and I was the youngest chief vehicle engineer by, uh, by quite a long shot. And yeah, I that's a, a lot of responsibility. Eyes. That's a lot. Blue eyes. Yeah. What's <laughs> What's so cool, or maybe interesting and, and educational to me, is that you were an electrical engineer, or that was your, what your degree was in. But then, in a few years after proving yourself with different electrical systems, you end up in charge of the entire vehicle. And my brain always thought, oh, if you're going to build, you know, the entire machine, a lot of it's made of metal. You have to be a mechanical engineer or a chassis engineer. But it seems like, is it once you're an engineer, you have the right brain and process, and then you can learn the steps that are needed and the skills that are needed to apply it to a different, like, medium? Or, like, how did that happen? I would 100% agree with what you just said, that kind of engineering is engineering. But you're, you're, you're right. In the 90s, right up to the – we'll talk about EVs in a moment, I'm sure. But pre-EVs, you know, chief vehicle engineers, they were almost all powertrain guys. Mm. Or – Body and white guys, and they were the elite, right? The, the the heart of the car was the engine. The good engineers worked in powertrains. You didn't get to be a chief vehicle engineer until you'd done your time in powertrain. So I was a I was highly unusual. Not only was I not Japanese, I was not a powertrain engineer. Um, I was like a lot younger than the other guys. So yeah, I was an outsider in many respects. But actually, you know what? That was always a huge advantage to me, being an outsider has always helped me right through my career. What do you think is the, you know, the the real difference between developing a car, because your, your three major projects, and I'm sure you've worked on other stuff, but the three ones in the book, you've got the Qashqai, which is a compact crossover, which was it was sort of right at the beginning of what became one of the biggest segments, if not the biggest segment in cars today. Then you had the uh, the Renault Zoe, which was a, an electric car. Um, and then, the, of course, the Alpine A110, which is probably what our audience cares about the most. Um, do, you know, what is really some of the, the crucial differences between the processes of designing and, and engineering mass market cars versus lower volume niche market uh, enthusiast cars? Mm. The, all three projects have their differences, obviously, right? The first vehicle, like you said, not relatively conventional vehicle. Okay, it, it, some people claim it created the kind of C-segment crossover that certainly dominates in Europe and Asia these days, not so much in the States, but um, well, we are tax incentivized to buy super duty pickup trucks, sir. <laughs> Re- recognize our financial reward system, please. Capitalism, yay, unless you want a giant truck, and then we will subsidize you. <laughs> so that, that was the challenge for that vehicle was really, um, you know, creating this new segment. The challenge for the Zoe EV, the difference there, especially in 2008, because the development of that car was between 2007 and 2012, EVs were really new. You couldn't just phone up the tier one supplier and say, hey, I need a DC-DC converter. I need an inverter. They didn't exist, so therefore everything had to be designed in-house. I'm sure we'll come back to the Alpine A110, but 
the challenge there was weight management, right? It was all about pounds and the ounces uh, and the grams, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to that. But I'd rather underline the common thread between the three of them. And this is really, really boring, and your listeners are probably going to turn off. Now, but the common thread between the three is actually cost management. Right. Because it's one thing making a car. Making a car that's not going to lose money is really tough. And all of the vehicles I've worked on have been relatively affordable. Even the A110, I mean, in U.S. dollars, it's coming in at around 65000 U.S. dollars. That's not, it's not a super expensive vehicle. So the common thread between the three projects is cost management, not just of the pieces of the car, but the investment, the manpower, the you know hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars that get spent on these. So that's probably the common thread you have to do. Uh, and you have to get, you, you know, one thing that drives me crazy, Matt, is the, the old Bob Lutz thing of bean counters versus engineers. Right. I actually don't like that trope because if you want to be a good engineer and you want to get stuff into production, you have to be able to count beans. I think Bob Lutz, and he's probably going to show up at my door with a gun, but I think Bob Lutz <laughs> is overrated. I know a lot of people yeah. in America don't feel that way, and Bob Lutz is like a god, but... He had a lot of bombs. Like he had a lot of stuff under his watch that was straight up not good. He has a lot of takes about stuff that are straight up not good. I'm not a, I'm not a Bob Lutz worshipper. I just think I think I just heard someone at the door. There. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard yeah. someone banging yeah. on the door. Open the door. Yeah, sissy. someone. Someone. <laughs> Bob Lutz is going to show up with a cigar, a, an eight foot cigar, and a can of gasoline, and burn my building down for saying that. Yeah, but, and then do push ups while you uh, yeah. while you cry. A lot. I think a lot of yeah. a lot of our you know it's it's all from that photo with the rolled opal with his foot up on there like Captain Morgan. You know that he earned his, his reputation. I mean, I think he. He was in charge of a lot of really good programs, but he's in yeah. the game so long yeah. that there were also stumbles. That also could be part of the the larger machine, like if if like the John Coletti uh, uh, episode. There were so many things that he wanted to do, and then the team he was working with would say, "Well, we've never done that before," and he was like, "Well, then fucking figure it out." Yeah, you know, you never know. Yeah. So the let's talk about costs because it is it is a recurring theme of your book. It is a, uh, no matter the car, like you just said, whether it's a crossover or an EV or a sports car, how finely calculated are the costs of parts? You talk about arguing a couple times in the book for fractions of pennies. Yep. Yep. So let, let's talk about mass market cars, right? So I'm not talking about high-end Porsches. I'm not talking about Ferraris, but I'm talking about mass market cars, the majority of cars we drive, right? The very, very best in the business. And we're talking Volkswagen, Toyota, BMW in their good days. You can look this up in their corporate accounts, right? I'm not giving away any industry secrets. They make consolidated profit on their products of somewhere around 5 to 7%. 7% will be a good day, okay? Now, the secret of that is, uh, let's take that 7%. About 3% of that is on sales and service. It's when you take your car in to get you know, an oil change. It's when you change your brake pads, et cetera. So the product itself is making about a 4% margin. There is no under, other industry, guys, that I can think of that has such fine margins. Yeah. So if you yeah. get the cost of the parts you're buying wrong by 2%, you've hacked your profit margin. You're out of the game. You're just going to be, you're dead in the water. So 
There is no other industry that I can think of that has such huge upfront investments, such paper thin margins, therefore everything has to be finely engineered in terms of cost. Now I know that's super boring. I'm sorry to everyone listening that's not an accountant. No, it's, it's not. It's the re it's that's the reality. We get <laughs> we get a lot of criticism from people and I don't think it's founded, but we get criticism from people for like telling the truth <laughs> about things and they want us the, you're my escape from my shitty day job i don't want to hear about the about real life from you i want to hear supercars and fantasy land but this is but that is the reality of um does that change if you're talking about a mclaren or a ferrari or a, uh something that is at the the upper tier i mean i i, I once talked to um my friend Maz, who is the, uh, the, 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 the guy who really runs Singer, the 9-11 yeah, yeah. folks, right? Not Rob, the, the, the artist, you know, the guy, the, the, the accountant, right? And I said, you know, we were talking about his new DLS thing, the dynamic and lightweighting study, this incredible thing. And I said, yeah, you know, it's like two million bucks, right? I guess you, you must be really, you guys must be really killing it right now for two million bucks. And he goes, let me tell you something, friend. When it costs two million bucks to make, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly the same thing when you're selling it for two point one. You know, after a year of building, so yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I've, I've worked with some, um, you know, niche boutique makers as well. And I'm I'm gonna say the cost challenge is just as difficult, but the emphasis changes. So in other words rather than getting obsessive about the cost of each part right the actual bits you're buying you have to get really obsessive about the fixed cost the tooling cost the prototype costs so that's where someone like maz at singer or the guys in mclaren or the guys in gordon murray those guys have to be really disciplined on their fixed costs they can spend a bit more on the fancy titanium bits the carbon fiber bits sure but they can't blow two million bucks on a lighting tool like Nissan or Renault or GM will do, you know, before breakfast. So they've got to be really disciplined on the fixed costs. Yeah. That's probably why they use the same tub for as long as they do, right? Because you build this tooling to make a carbon tub and you have to make it last as long as possible. For sure. And why, you know, even the top end supercars, the most difficult bits are often things like lighting or switch gear. Yeah. Right? Because switch gear is incredibly expensive to tool, and those guys don't have the deep pockets, so they try and get carryover switch gear, disguise it as best they can. But that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. So yeah, switch so gear famous is one of the Lamborghini. More uh, yeah, the, sure. The famous Lamborghini uh, Nissan headlights on the Diablo. Oh, yeah. Uh, the uh, yeah, all, all that kinds of stuff. Like window switches and stuff. And yeah, that's why, that's why parts sharing exists. Yeah. yeah. And well, also like why haptic uh, haptic buttons, I take it, are probably such a way for them to save money, right? Because they just have to make a, a black panel with a with a click button and not some physical moving thing, right? Yeah, and it's part of the temptation as well. Why a touchscreen can, in certain circumstances, save you money, right? Um, and why we see a little bit of overuse in touchscreen cars these days. But, you know, the numbers are huge. If you take a simple understeering wheel, Switch gear, right? Turn signals, lights, wipers, you know, basic stuff. To tool one of those up from scratch these days, you're talking about eight million bucks just for that, right? Yeah. So it, it, the numbers are astronomical for these parts and, you know, boutique makers can't afford that. 
All right, folks, got to take a quick break from the action because Factor is here. It's summer. You got to be looking for wholesome and convenient meals for sunny and active days. For me, summer means the busy season. It means we're filming. It means cars are coming in and out of the shop. It means travel. It means I'm running around. And it means I need to focus on eating healthy and eating, period, because sometimes I actually skip meals, which is really unhealthy, because there isn't something easy, healthy, and convenient to eat. So with Factor, it's great. You got the nutritious and ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door, and then I keep them in the fridge here at the shop. So when I get back from a long shoot, six hours up on the mountain from 6 a.m. to noon, I'm starving, and I need to have food like right now, and I need it to be healthy, and I need it to be tasty, and that's where Factor comes in. I'm too busy to go to the store. I don't want to order some unhealthy takeout food. I certainly don't want to stop at fast food, and that's why Factor is the jam. They're fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy and then get back to your activities, get back to work, get back to play, get back to your family, what have you. And if you're looking for calorie-conscious options for the summer, try delicious, dietitian approved calorie smart wheat meals with at or around or less 550 calories per serving. If you need an extra boost to support your wellness goals, try the Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. Those are the ones I go for. I'm on a protein-heavy diet right now, so all the protein I can shove into my face, that's what I'm going with. They got new upscale surf and turf and surf and surf meal options, roasted garlic filet mignon and shrimp, Cajun spice shrimp and salmon, Yummy. They got keto stuff, vegan stuff, vegetarian stuff, protein stuff, everything for any type of diet you're on. Factor has got it. If you want to budget this month by cutting back on takeout, just go with Factor instead. It's cheaper than takeout. It's faster than takeout. And in many cases, it's better for you as well. Head over to factormeals.com slash tire50. Factormeals.com slash Tire50 and use code Tire50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code Tire50 at Factormeals.com slash Tire50 to get 50% off your first box. And thanks to Factor for sponsoring today's show. I remember uh, in 2010 when Ford updated the Shelby GT500 from the 07 to 09 model, which was a massive turd, to the 10 model, which was a great car. One of their changes, very small, most people don't even notice, is they went from a badge, about you know this big, small Shelby badge, to spreading the Shelby letters across the whole trunk. And the chief design engineer at SVT told me that was $2 million to make that change, <laughs> to make that change. And how many Shel, you know, how many Shelbys did they sell? So it's like, you know, it's not probably like, you know, <laughs> yeah, not too many. It's probably $25 a car, you know, to, to make that change. It's uh, that kind of stuff adds up really fast. What is some of the most, if you can recall, you know, sort of biggest spend for <laughs> smallest return, if you will, in some of those cars? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think. I remember the... Um the chrome badge when we did the the zoe which is a small i gotta explain this to your to your audience who may not have seen a zoe so 
basically we have a the photo of Zoe. Yeah, so basically the Renault Zoe is the better looking French sister of a Nissan Leaf. That's the summary of it. Um, it is a good looking car. I like this hatchback. Thank, thank you, sir. Um, so it was developed at the same time as the Leaf. You guys will be very familiar with the Leaf. Mm -hmm. um, this was actually the best-selling EV in Europe for many years. It was knocked off its perch a couple of years ago by the uh, by the Tesla 3. But that was my baby, and I'm very proud of it. So you can't quite see it in that image, but the chrome on the car, that 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 front emblem, you know, we wanted something that would show the car was electric because it was a bit different. And some, some of the guys in the design studio came up with the great idea of, wouldn't it be cool if it was like a sort of a translucent blue rather than just silver? Um, I won't tell you the numbers on the tooling to make blue chrome, but I can tell you that it was deep into the seven figures. <laughs> oh, here we go. The process meant that it couldn't be done in Europe because some of the chemicals you had to use to oh. had been outlawed in Europe. There you go. You can see it there. Yes, it's very important to use very dangerous chemicals when making your green car. Absolutely. It's very important. We must we must outsource this to a country with no EPA. <laughs> so I'm ashamed to say that badge was purchased from a country I will not name where they had, um, let's say, a lower value on human life. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that badge yeah. causes a lot of headaches. But it looks yeah. good. It looks great. A, and you guys, it looks like some blue chrome trim on the inside of the... Uh, front mouth there or that may just be the photo no we got it on that as well there but again a story you know just talking about that chrome the the detail you have to do because we hadn't used that chrome before and you can't just buy it um get it done in some country and get them shipped in that chrome had to be tested of course in an arizona desert it had to be exposed mm -hmm. to the arizona Death Valley sun load test, and it also had to undergo the car wash test, right? So the car right. wash test is you bring your car into a particularly aggressive rollover car wash with very dirty brushes, and you do that every day for three years. Oh, and wait, every day? So every day for three yeah. years, meaning like you would... So in, in testing, would somebody with a, a prototype vehicle, you know, maybe covered in these badges, have to go through a car wash like 200 times? Yes, sir. So that was we, that was part of our durability test. So the, 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 oh the vehicles God. go through gravel tests, salt spray, you imagine 24 hours a day. And part of the test was the guys going repeatedly through a rollover. <laughs> Glamorous uh, job as prototype testing. Oh, yeah. uh, what do you think is driving the young people's interest in those '90s cars? Because I kind of forgot you 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 all had access to most of those. So what's driving them to go back a couple generations? That's a damn good question. I got to ask um, one of my colleagues on on the intercooler, Joe Fidalgo. Joe is a big JDM fan. She drives a Suzuki Cappuccino. I, I, I need to ask Joe for a definitive answer, but. I think it's partly the movies, right? We we gotta kind of tip the hat to Fast and Furious, like the people are revisiting the early ones, especially Tokyo Drift. You know, it's quite a cool movie. Love so that one. Gotta, yeah. You gotta give a little bit of credit to that, but also I think they're just rediscovering some of the old rally footage. Um, you know, some of the WRC stuff in that era. I mean, it's just awesome to watch. YouTube is full of it, um, and also there. 
they're solid cars, you know, mechanically they're pretty easy to work on. A lot of the electronics has been remanufactured. Um, so they're they're not that difficult cars to restore and to run. So yeah, I think a combination of all those, this is just, a, they're just cool as hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they look good. They're also, they have such a different shape because it was before pedestrian crash standards. Uh, not that they didn't exist, but you know they changed a lot. I'm sure you can speak to that. But if you look at the profile of, um, like yesterday, we had a guest, Bucky Lasik, who's a professional skateboarder, and he owns five Impreza 2.5 RSs. Huge fan of them. And if you look at the profile of that car, the hood is so low, whereas the modern ones, it's for, you know it's a lot taller and thicker because of pedestrian crash standards. So the accessibility of of the mechanics and they're affordable to buy and easy to work on it kind of makes sense that people are are more drawn to that stuff he's saying jdm stuff is really popular resurging in popularity in europe right now oh, even sure. though they could buy it before like we couldn't but it's just a combination of media and accessibility yeah guys got to take another quick break from the action for caldera lab this stuff is clutch you know what the problem is with skincare it's so heavily female driven that men you know especially like manly men we just don't think about it that often and then before you know it you're in your 40s and your skin is tired it's dry it's itchy it's red it doesn't look great but there is something you can do about it and you don't have to be an expert you don't have to do a lot of research the caldera lab stuff which they sent me last week and it is great it's a full regimen right? You don't have to think. It's just easily labeled. It's high-performance men's skin care, clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and size of signs of aging. Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skin care and is here to save the day, right? All you got to do is open the regimen bundle. Inside, you'll find the skincare dream team. You got the clean slate, the base layer, and the good. The clean slate, it starts and ends your day. Okay, it's face wash, leaves all types of skin refreshed and hydrated. Okay, then there's the base layer. That's your daily moisturizer, hydrates your skin, absorbs fast, leaving you with a matte finish so you can start your day. And then the good is your go-to at night before bed multifunctional serum that helps your skin look tighter and smoother and reduces visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. It's full of antioxidants protecting your skin. Right? That's it. They even have this eye serum called the Icon. It addresses the three most common skin concerns around the eyes. Fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness. Those items in the bundle, in the regimen bundle, are all you need. Right? It's clean slate, base layer, the good, plus the Icon. That's it. It's all you need. Whole skincare regimen. Caldera Lab is made with top-tier ingredients. It's a great addition to your daily routine. Takes less than a minute, morning and night, and you can reduce your wrinkles, lines, puffiness, and signs of aging. Avoid being the butt of everyone's joke and take the leap to skincare royalty with Caldera Lab. And now you can get 20% off with our code TIRE at calderalab.com. That's 20% off at C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A b.com by using code tire take your health to the next level in skincare with caldera lab.com code tire bird dogs they have these new stretch 
khaki shorts and they are amazing. Summer's here, shorts is here. In California, we've only got two seasons, kind of chilly and death hot. And so when it gets to death hot, the jeans go away, the shorts come out, and that's where bird dogs come in. They're designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a sculpted look, but without giving up the fit, right? Lululemon, they do the same thing, but bird dogs does it better because they have this cloud knit fabric that looks like khaki, but it stretches, so you get the benefits of the slimmer fit with the look, but you get the movement from those big, boxy, stiff cotton shorts that you're used to. Bird Dogs has an anti-stink and sweat-wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. They sent me some of these shorts, and they are great. They're comfortable. They look good. You can wear them in a sort of semi-professional environment, um, and they uh, they keep me dry. They keep me from smelling, and I can wear them while working out, too. They're awesome. Super comfortable stuff. Go to birddogs.com slash tire and enter promo code tire for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash tire, and then code tire also for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take off these bird dogs. They are great. Back to the action. Um, so I'm so bummed that we don't get the Alpine A110 here. I thought maybe we would get it under an, a Nissan banner. They kept kind of teasing us that maybe we would get it it's such a pretty car it's it seems like the kind of thing that us us enthusiasts would really want the fact that a number of journalists have bought them yeah journalists that don't have a lot of like a ton of money have bought them and everyone just celebrates how it drives is and when gordon Gordon, murray buys one (laughs) yeah you're in good shape (laughs) i think I, I don't get a lot of hate mail, right? Apart from people who can't pronounce Kashkai, but I get a lot of hate mail still for the A110. Like, please stop telling us how good it is and how lightweight it is and how agile it is because we can't fucking buy one. So, yeah. And all I can say is, sorry, guys, you just got to wait another 22 years until you can import one. It's right. going to go real quick. Move to France. It's, um, you know, it's so interesting reading about um, your team and how much focus was put on weight because Mm. us enthusiasts, we always talk about how we want lightweight, we want lightweight, we want lightweight, and yet the mainstream manufacturers, um, even Porsche, um, even Ferrari, they don't really seem to listen to that. I mean, Ferrari just came out with a thousand horsepower hybrid that is like ridiculously heavy and ridiculously expensive. Um, even the 296 GTB is 3,700 uh, pounds and change. Um, you know, Porsche does a decent job, but but they still value features over weight savings with all but their most hardcore models. Why do you think that the rest of the industry is unwilling to focus on on weight? It's, unfortunately, it's a pretty easy answer, Matt. It, it's a really hard sell. Um, and I kept reminding my team at Alpine that, guys, remember, mass is not an attribute. The customer does not feel mass. The customer feels acceleration, longitudinal, and the customer feels acceleration, lateral, and vertical. So the word agility is actually what you're achieving. 
And agility is a really hard thing to sell. So I can sell you zero to 60 times all day long. I can show you videos of, you know, drag races all day long. I can add power to the car. All that stuff's really easy. Telling you how the car feels agile is very hard to sell. And the only way I can sell it actually is to get you to sit in the car. And then you understand in the first 50 yards. But it's a really hard thing to sell. And let, let, let's, let's, let's be realistic about the Alpine A110. So it's been a smash hit with the media, right? It's blown all of the records in terms of five-star reviews, 10-star reviews. The number of journalists who bought them with their own money is, you know, the list is very, very long. You will not meet anyone who's driven one who will say anything other than that this is a great car. But let's look at the sales figures. It still gets its ass kicked in the market by the Cayman, by the Audi TT. Um, so it's really, really hard to sell. So I actually think the legacy of the A110 will not be in its sales figures per se, but in the influence it's had on its competitors. Because I mm -hmm. do think it's making Porsche, Ferrari, BMW look harder at mass and how we can manage it. So if it had a slight influence in pushing the mass agenda up the priority list, then I'm really proud to have contributed to that. Even sure. if it's just you, a little bit. Do you think some of the sales, uh, I guess being slower than, than the journalist take rate, is because you relaunched a new brand that people are unfamiliar with and you're trying to like you know convince them to come and jump in this new thing? Sure, T ton of things. I mean, that also the fact that it's made by the Renault Group, right? Alpine is a is a brand owned by the Renault Group, so it's not Porsche, it's not Ferrari, it's not BMW. You know, you, you basically say, hang on, this is this is Renault, right? They make little hatchbacks, little quirky French stuff. Um, it's easy to persuade someone to go into a Porsche dealer and sit in a Cayman. It's harder to persuade that same same person to come and come to this thing called an Alpine showroom and sit in this little blue thing. So yeah, that that that's a that's a lot tougher. Um, but it's a car, you know. The the whole marketing ethos of the car is you just got to get people in in there, drive it, and you've got to sail before they've got fifty yards. How did how did the new Alpina stick to its guns about lightness? Because it's owned by Renault, which makes cars, you know, mass market cars that can be as heavy as their competitors. And and what was it about? Launch it, relaunching this brand that you and the team were able to stick to this mission of let's keep yeah. it incredibly light. I know the original cars weighed like 800, they were something crazy light, but you know, they could have changed that if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah, and the original cars built back in the 70s, I mean, those cars are incredibly small. I mean, really, really small. You know, folks who are over like 6'1 physically cannot get in them. And you don't even want to think about crashing one. You know, it's made yeah. out of fiberglass, um, you know, you're, you're basically sitting on the fuel tank, not good. But anyway, that was back in the day. Um, I, I'm going to give the credit to two things for that, Zach. So first of all, I mean, the, the car had a really powerful sponsor from day one. And that sponsor, I'm going to give me kudos, it's Carlos Tavares, right? Who's the big boss these days of Stellantis. He was the, he was the car guy. He was the guy who said, look, we got to build this. He persuaded the big bosses, Carlos Ghosn at the time, and the board of directors that we should take a flyer on this. And he was the guy who said to me and the team, look, guys, if you can't manage the mass, you're going to screw this up. So mass is your, it's all about the mass. So part of the answer is Carlos Tavares. The second part of the answer is really, you know, we, we played the old skunk works 
um, rulebook. So, you know, the old Lockheed Martin Skunk Works rulebook, if you want to do something different like this, you create a small team, you separate them from the mothership, you put them in a building, you give them a small budget, and you give them control. And we had that really rare thing in the modern industry. There was a small team of us, just about 100 people, physically put into a different site, and we were told to rip up the rulebook. We were given a very small amount of money and a fixed time and said, get on with it. And that's super rare, guys. I cannot tell you how rare that is in the industry. And that's the reason we were able to keep control over the maps. It's uh, and the other thing you uh, you spent a lot of time on in the book is talking about the need to not have a rear wing. And I feel like whenever we talk to a lot of Europeans, they make a really whether it's you or or Gordon or 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 some some other folks we've talked to who have been involved in car design in Europe, um, they make big de- a big deal out of not having a, a rear wing that it that it ruins the lines of the car. And I see your perspective, but. We go the other way in America. We we we, can't, we either can't make a car without a wing, but they, or they they find ways to feature it, or it's a it's a big deal to have the wing. So so why was it so important to not have a wing? And talk about the 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 lengths to which you guys went to not have that wing. So do you think the guys are working on the Plymouth Barracuda? We're trying to okay we. We we're trying to do it without a wing, but really missed the target. <laughs> I saw. I just saw recently. Uh, you know, one of these muscle car auctions where someone had built a sort of what if car, which was a right. uh, a super bird. You know, with the big you know meter yeah, high yeah. wing, right, and the nose cone. But it was conceptualizing that as a convertible, and what? you think that car looks dumb as a coupe. <laughs> it's like it looks. So it looks like is, a boat. It is a horror show. Yeah, it looks like it looks, a Riva. It just looks like a yeah, like an actual like speedboat with a wing on it. Boat. You can tow. You can tow wakeboards behind you. Yeah, that's awful. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. We. we but, but to get back to your question, Matt, the, um, yeah, a couple of things. So first of all, it was obviously the whole, once again, like a, a broken record, right? Was this whole mass thing, because whether you have a, a fixed wing or an electrically deployable wing, it's all mass, right? And we were fighting for, not for pounds and ounces, but for grams. So that was our first driver. Second driver was, we really did want to kind of do, uh, you know, pay our respects to the original Berlinette, that, that, that car we just showed in the image, so the 1970s original. And when you look at that car, particularly in a straight side view, it has a very particular curve to the rear, you know, the rear quarters, and there was no spoiler. So the chief designer, a guy called, good good buddy of mine called Anthony Villan, Anthony was really keen that we tried to emulate that. Not not like pastiche it, not rip it off, but just kind of not, a, not tip our hats to it. So we spent a lot of work, a lot of time in the wind tunnel, to get the rear diffuser to really, really work, not just be something that looked cool from the car behind when you're looking at the car from the from the rear, but actually functionally worked. And we, we managed it. But um, the good news is if you like a wing on your Alpine, since then there's the R version, which is kind of the racing version. Um, and yeah, you can get a wing on it as well if you want. Um, I but the purest I've seen that one. Is there can you Zach, can you get a picture of the Alpine R? Yeah. I want to see what the wing. A110R. Oh, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, it's got yeah. it's got like a black hood. It's got uh, a yeah. black roof. It's got some different go. wheels. So I just want to. There we go. Yeah. So okay. that's that's the normal one. It for does look good without it. I'm not. I'm it not. Looks uh, so good. I'm not saying that I am necessarily pro wing if it's not necessary. But uh, you you know there's there's pages uh, about that rear uh, three quarter fender and the 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 way how difficult it was to to manufacture and why it was so important to get that right as well as to not have the uh, the wing. Would you say it's true that? Uh, Curves cost a lot of money. <laughs> I could make such a, a politically incorrect comment there, uh, Matt. But I, <laughs> I'm it. Um, for sure, especially on uh, you know aluminum stamping aluminum that that thin because it's got really really thin panels. This car and we were pushing those forms right to the edge. And you know I, I tell the story in the book. I won't bore you guys with the details of it here. Where you know the the computer simulation of the press process told us that this wouldn't work. Um, you know, it will crack. Uh, and we kind of took a brave pill and said, hey, nah, computer's probably being a bit pessimistic and went for it anyway. Um, guess what? The computer was right and it was an absolute <laughs> nightmare to work. So some of these gray hairs you see here are due to that uh, rear three quarter on that car. But I'll work it. Um, when you're, you know, the the overall project uh, vehicle uh, manager for this this big team doing this big car, how small does your job get? For instance, we were talking about a car yesterday. Um, we were driving and, and we we're driving the new Audi RS5, and we yeah. were talking about the, which is a lovely car, and we were talking about the specific behavior of the radar cruise control system, specifically how it. Uh, you know, you, when you set the follow distance and the car in front. Uh, accelerated and how 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 big the sort of rubber band effect would be before it it caught up and you know when you're when you're designing a vehicle you you know and it's got a system like that or or any other you know small nuanced fundamentally software based decisions are you getting involved in the nitty gritty of how that car behaves or is it much more how it looks you know how it drives and 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 the structure and the materials and things like that. Yeah, you know th that's such a great question, Matt. And you know I'm I'm an old I'm I'm an old soldier in the industry these days. So I get a, I get a lot of time out to train the folks who are now leading the projects in the future. And we often discuss this, right? And one of the advice I give to chief you know up and coming chief vehicle engineers is you cannot get into the weeds on every technical detail. You cannot. If you try, you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to piss off your team because they're going to figure out, okay, here's a guy who doesn't trust us, doesn't know how to delegate. But here's the thing. You have to have the nose. You have to sense where you do need to get into the weeds. So let's say it's the cruise control. Let's say that, that gentleman responsible for that car, that person, I don't know if it was a gentleman or a lady. Statistically, it was probably a dude. Um, they need to have the sense to say, okay, there's, a, there's an issue here with the cruise control. I got to get into the detail. And here's the thing. When you decide to deep dive, when you decide to put on the scuba gear and you're going to go all the way to the bottom, you got to be technically able to do it. So if you're going to deep dive on every item, you're just going to burn yourself out. But when you do put on the scuba gear and you decide to go into the detail, you can't bullshit it. You have That's when you show your engineering chops. And if you are bullshitting it, if you're pretending you know what you're talking about, it your team are going to see it immediately. 
So the job is a lot about delegating, monitoring your radar screens. When things are going okay, let the team get on with it. But then when you got to deep dive, you put on the deep sea diving gear, you got to go down. And so a lot of it is the instinct to pick up which are the items that I need to deep dive on. But if you do it everywhere, you get burned out. And many, many people do, trust me. So many car projects start with a chief vehicle engineer. And after six months or nine months, get what? Guess what? They get they get switched out. Yeah. I can probably tell you what's happened. <laughs> yeah. 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 Interesting. The um when you went from Kashkai to Zoe, did mm. you have any experience in electric vehicles at all? Nada. Zitch. Okay. So what so you know, give me the, the biggest in your face surprise about that process. Ah, well, well to, just to qualify what I said, you know, I went to, onto that project in 2008. Back then, nobody had any experience in electric vehicles. Right. Um, there were the team who had worked on the GM EV1 back in the 90s. Uh, there were a couple of dudes in Teslas, Tesla, who were kind of, you know, starting to work on the S. And there were my colleagues in Nissan. So nobody had experience. So it wasn't unusual that, you know, that I should have zero experience. Now, to answer your, your, your specific question, what was the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise was that it's not the batteries and the electric motor that's the hard bit. The biggest surprise was that's relatively easy, right? The, the bit you think is going to be tricky, like that big ass battery under the floor and making the traction motor work. That actually wasn't the hard bit. The hard bit is everything that goes around it. The hard bit is braking. The hard bit is air conditioning. The hard bit is figuring out, you know, how do I power the 12 volt electrical systems? So it's actually the ancillaries. It's the stuff around the powertrain. That was my biggest wake up call. And I think it's still underestimated in the industry. So I, I tell people starting EV projects, don't worry about the batteries and motors. They'll take care of themselves. Worry about everything else. Mm. They just announced um, yesterday, Ford announced that in, in mm. North America, they are going to begin to adopt what they are calling the NACS, North American Charging Standard, more commonly known as the Tesla Charger. In yeah. Europe, they, I, from, from what I understand, they forced Tesla to use the CCS-type charger, standardizing it across Europe. Is it is it all of Europe or is it just some countries? I don't want to get that wrong. Basically all of Europe. And Basically that took, all of Europe. That, that took years. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I mean, that was a huge battle between the French and German makers. But, yeah, it's basically standard in Europe. And when I say Europe, I'm including the United Kingdom. They're still part of the continent. Yeah. And so we who uh, know a lot about this stuff, or at least like to think we do, think that that is a better system. Have all chargers work for all vehicles, right? Because brand-specific chargers are a waste of resources. Um, you know, when if you're trying to to get a large population to buy electric cars, then you know, imagine you could only fill up your Renault at a Renault gas station and your Porsche at a Porsche gas station. I mean, how stupid would our landscape look? It would be ridiculous. But now Ford has gone, you know what, we are going to go with this other standard, abandoning the CCS. Now, they're going to give us an adapter. They, they will 
They're giving us an adapter. So it's not going to no longer work on those stations, but they, they've now kind of switched to this other standard. Do you think that this is wise? Do you think that, uh, that, that America should force one standard uh, like Europe has? Um, from someone who has integrated a charging system into a vehicle before, what do you think about that choice? Right. I'm going to give you two answers. And first of all, I'm not going to permit myself as some European to make a comment on what you guys do in the, in, in, in North America. What do you think about you, guns? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can, can I make some comments on President Trump? Would that be yes, okay? Please, no, please, please. Do. <laughs> um, no, more seriously. Um, obviously, as an engineer, it drives me crazy when we have different standards around the world, right? The fact that we have CCS, the fact that we still have CHAD-MO in Japan, the fact that the Chinese government has, ins has insisted on another standard, and that there's two standards in the States. I mean, that's crazy. We should have one standard. It's going to be a benefit to consumers around the world. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be more reliable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not going to contradict myself by saying, Here's the thing, I know so many friends in the US who drive Teslas. And I say to them, you know, have you not considered like some really cool Hyundai products or, you know, the, the Mach E is a cool product, you know, Taycan? So many times they said to me, Dave, yeah, the, the car is great, but the charging experience at Tesla still kicks ass. So there's a de facto Tesla, rightly or wrongly, invested in a, a unique proprietary standard back in 2010. And customers like it so i understand completely um i understand the temptation to jim farley um and it's 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 more a reflection on the the other standards that it has not been able to overtake tesla and give a better user experience that's a that's a pity yeah it's a dvd and blu-ray it's like yeah. tesla tesla made the dvd and yeah i mean it's it's i i hope you know you but you also have to sort of understand that not not you. I mean, you you certainly understand. Yeah. I mean, the, the the royal you has to understand that one of the reason it's so much better is because it only has to work on Teslas. If if you you know if it has if it has to work on everything, there's almost no way it's going to work as well as when it just has to work on Teslas. That's that's the nature of that system. Well, because both systems are optimized, the charger right. and the car that it's charging. Yeah, and the yeah. billing goes through the car. There's no credit card. There's no RFID reader. It's it's all just one. You know, as we talked about with um, Ali from, from Range, you know, that's a, that's a closed loop system and when you have to make it work for everybody there's almost no way it could be as efficient and good and slick as it is right yeah but i mean the, the, the subject of infrastructure in general i know we're telling the listeners stuff they know already but i mean it is now that it is the challenge the challenge is not energy density or, or cost etc it's when you're in a part of the world where there's a dense, well-developed charging infrastructure, I'm thinking about the Bay Area, I'm thinking about Norway, I'm thinking about Portugal here in Europe. When you, when you drive an EV in those areas, it's such a seamless, easy experience. But then when you go to a country, and I'm going to pick on Germany, for example, because Germany has a surprisingly bad EV charging network, it's a nightmare. You're having to plan your trips and get out Google Maps and make sure you got your thing planned out. So it really is the deal breaker. And what's what's interesting is to see so much investment going into the infrastructure. 
Um, and that's that's really really encouraging. National in government opinion, still haven't got that message though. In your opinion, is the difference between countries that do it well and countries that do not do it well the government's understanding of the needs and the appropriate incentives and the appropriate investment or is it that private industry is doing a better job in those countries unfortunately it's largely government driven but you know note the two countries i mentioned in europe right norway and portugal you'll notice that there are no famous Norwegian or Portuguese car makers, right? Uh-huh. There are none. So Germany, for example, um, let's not forget, they invented the car. So the German government was very slow to get off the mark in investing in charging infrastructure, partly because, it's going to shock you guys, they had a huge industry to defend that was building internal combustion engine cars. Right. So it wasn't in the national interest to invest massively in EVs when you're making a ton of money out of building piston engine cars. Right. Here in America, Volkswagen had to invest in EVs as a punishment. (laughs) Okay. I mean, literally, the Electrify America network is punishment for Dieselgate. It's like, yeah, yeah, that that tracks. That definitely tracks. (laughs) And in the book you talked about, um, I forget if it was your decision or someone else's decision when you were doing the Zoe to physically send teams out to test every charger. Uh, was it around around Paris, Paris. right? It was, and it was thousands of chargers. De- definitely not my decision. I was the victim of no. that. Matt. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I read that story and I got stressed while reading it. <laughs> So I'm going to name check again uh, my old boss, Carlos Tavares, um, now big boss at Stellantis. Um, he basically lost patience with us. We were reporting to him weekly that we've got problems with these charges, we got this software patch, we're fixing it, boss, it'll be better next week. And basically, he lost it at one stage and said, cut your bullshit, get out there, test every charger. And we said to him, um, okay, boss, you do know there's like 4,000 chargers in Paris. And he basically said, I don't care, test them all. And we did, we had 15 cars and we basically got in the cars, myself and my, my immediate team. We split Paris up. We got like a big ass street atlas of Paris and 24 hours a day, we just ran the cars, went in and connected them to every charge point um, so that we could go back and have some, here's the report. Here's the ones that didn't work and this is why, and this is how we're gonna get them fixed. It was Now incredible. would you also have to, would you also have to then drive down the charge in between those stations? Because you know, if you're if you're just going charger, 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 charger the, yeah. the battery on the car will remain full, and it won't behave the way that a car would behave if you pulled up to it with a low battery. So you'd have to drive like extraneous miles or kilometers in between uh, the the sessions. Well, luckily, we figured out that the particular phenomenon we were looking at, which was a very complex effect of a, an electrical spike on the ground of the power supply of the of the charge station would happen within the first 10 minutes of charge so it wasn't like it was going to happen after five hours so all we had to do was drive a few miles between charge points luckily hook it up for 10 minutes uh-huh. basically sit in a cafe drink a coffee then move it on a couple miles so I almost died from caffeine poisoning. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the glamorous world of pre-production testing. 
Um, the other thing I thought that was a funny anecdote that you talk about in the book was the balance between needing support from the brass to continue mm. the Alpine project, mm. understanding that the way you were going to get that support is by allowing them to drive the cars and enjoy that mm. for themselves, mm. and being very concerned <laughs> that if they drive the cars, they're going to crash them. Uh, they're not very good drivers. They don't really, you know, they're driving these pre-production mules that are probably millions of dollars of, of hand-built, you know, whatever each. And so I thought that to be very funny because I would assume if, if I ran a car company, I'd want seat time in everything. But you actually were in a position to say, no, you can't have that, which is funny. And, then, and that was the difficulty, right? Because we had very senior executives and, you know, full respect to them, very senior executives who worked for years in this car company making small family cars, right? So they'd driven a ton of front wheel drive Euro hatches and they were very competent, but many of them had never driven a rear wheel drive car with, you know, more than 200 brake horsepower. And, you know, so some guy with a fancy title, like a executive vice president, so-and-so would call me up and say, oh, Dave, can I come out and um, test one of your cars next week? And I'd have to say, um, uh, that'll be that'll be a no. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it was pretty delicate, but like you said, the only way we could keep the project on track was to allow the really influential ones a certain amount of access to the car. So it was kind of like, you know, drug addicts. We had to give them a little bit of the drug, but not enough to kill them. Right, right, right. And what was, you know, when, when people that had mainly driven these family cars, when they got in it, were they just like... You know, eyes on fire, sort of like uh, that scene in Ford versus Ferrari when uh, okay. Matt Damon takes out the guy who plays uh, Henry Ford the second, and he starts crying. Oh, it's blown. I mean, I had the opportunity of demonstrating that car to so many people who'd never driven something similar, and yeah, yeah, you know, the big goofy smiles on people's faces. Um, yeah, but it, it could be terrifying as well. I mean, I remember one event. This was just pre-production. You know, we really the last polish before start of production. We did a demonstration at our handling track where we had a K-Man, we had an Alpha 4C, we had an Audi TT, we had all the competitors and the very top brass. So we had a Nissan executive who shall remain nameless and uh, he got in the car, I was in the passenger seat, so he said, hi Dave, uh, let's go. And we drove out of the pits and it was, it was raining, right? That nasty kind of spotting rain and my fault, this is 100% my fault. As we drove out of the out of the pits, I noticed the guy who was driving with both hands together at 12 o'clock. Oh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, not like a good this. sign. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's now, like how you can feel, when you can feel, you know, you just said, you alluded earlier, and other people have said it, and I've said it, you can, you can get the gist of a car in 50 feet. Same thing goes for a driver. You can get exactly. the gist of a driver in 50 feet, and I have gotten in cars with those people where I immediately go, I have made a mistake yeah, no, getting in this You should never car. operate a car like that. <laughs> but here's, here's where I went wrong, Matt. I, I had that gist in like 15 feet, but for whatever reason, I was being too diplomatic. I, you know, he's, he's a big dog. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to impress him, so I didn't say anything. I, and all I had to say was, look, just put your hands like either side. You'd be more comfortable. I said nothing. So we set off and the rain's getting worse and there's this downhill off camber right hander. It's not got good. no runoff. It's just got a metal rail. And 
as we come into it, I said to him, I said, look, you might want to just lift off a little bit here because this, this one's tricky. Just watch it. He just turns it in, right, like this. So he's got one elbow. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and the guy's a little bit overweight, right? So his elbow was immediately locked into his gut. Oh, man. And as he turned in, the car just lets go. It just snapped, just went. And all I could see was the steel barrier coming towards me thinking, game over, you know, this, it, it's gone. Luckily, the traction control system, the hand of God came down from above. Thank you, Robert Bosch, GmbH. <laughs> Our Lord Bosch. <laughs> Our Lord Bosch came and saved it, and it just got it right. And the guy just looked across at me and said, wow, I don't know how I caught that. And I was like, dude, you did not catch that. You did not that. catch that. <laughs> no, he went home, and he told people he was amazing. He called that drifting. Oh, my that God. That was a drift oh. he did. Yeah, so that, that's scary. That that's scary shit, man. I, that was my yeah. fault. Hundred percent my fault. You know, politeness. It's it's the it, politeness <sighs> is how the serial killer gets in your house. You know, politeness <laughs> is you know. You, There's you, nothing behind his eyes, but he's yeah, smiling. Yeah, polite. Yeah, politeness. Uh, we a lot of shit, bad shit happens because we don't want to be rude to this person, and that's 100%. the guy who's going to stab you when you go get him a glass of milk in the kitchen. I mean, I do think that <laughs> even if you had told this gentleman to put his hands at nine and three. He still would have made the same driving mistake and probably been unable to catch it. Yeah. So don't don't put too much blame on you on yourself. Well, at least if he if he hadn't had like if he hadn't wasn't locked in with like his elbow on his on, on his stomach, he might have had some chance. But anyway, our friends from Germany. This this podcast is sponsored by Robert Bosch GmbH. <laughs> when you uh, you said you had had some uh, some some competitive cars that the TT that came in the, mm. the 4C whatnot. Did you guys tear those cars down as well, or just have them to drive for dynamic comparison? Yeah, and how hard did you laugh when you tore down the the 4C? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know we we didn't have to tear it down; it, it dismantled itself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You know what? We didn't. We didn't. And the reason we didn't tear them down, two reasons. One was simply going back to what we talked about earlier, frugality, right? We were trying to be very careful with the with the dollars. So we didn't spend the money. And we also knew the masses of those cars. We knew we weren't going to learn a lot from ripping them apart. So we didn't. Um, but we spent a lot of time. I mean, it, it came down to really deeply benchmarking two cars, actually. We, we drove the 4C and quickly realized how limited it was, but the two stand out. Very, very were, diplomatic view. <laughs> it was. Were the obviously the Cayman. I mean, huge respect. I love those cars to bits, still do. And um, actually, the Lotus Exige. That was the other kind of sure. hardcore end. Um, so the A110. If you if you wanted to drive it, describe it to someone who can't drive it. It's kind of somewhere between those two cars. Somewhere between the Cayman and a, and a hardcore Exige. We're going to, uh, Zach and I are coming to the UK for uh, for Goodwood, actually, this summer, I think. I think. It's, it's, looks I good. think it's going to happen. Like it happen. looks good. And um, I'm going to make some phone calls and try to get a little bit of seat time in an A110. Um, I'm sure there's one. I heard there was actually a pink press car around, which has my name all over uh, it. Dan Neal drove Dan Neal it. drove it. Yeah. I think there is a pink press car somewhere, and I want to try it. Oh, very man, badly. You, 
I'm sure that my, my ex-colleagues from Alpine would welcome you with open arms. If you don't get the right answers, talk to me and I'll hook you up. Yeah, thanks. No, no, I, I it's the kind of thing, like, we haven't been to England in a, in a few years, um, you know, since uh, before COVID. And, like, since then, things have happened that we need to really, really catch up Whole on. cars have been built Whole and cars have... <laughs> and, and received many accolades. We're like, oh, that wasn't there when we were yeah, there we six years ago. Things, yeah. And so now you're a, now you're a writer. You wrote a book. You're writing for the Intercooler. How are you? Uh, and I, and the, Zach actually, when Zach read your book, he uh, he pulled a highlighter out and highlighted exactly one sentence. And that one oh, sentence. I, I don't remember. Oh doing no, this. You, you highlighted uh, a unless, couple. In, unless you didn't, and this book comes highlighted. No, no, I did it. I okay. just don't remember doing the it. The sentence that he life. highlighted here is: "Motoring journalists are far from stupid." That's the, <laughs> that's the one sentence I, did that I highlighted it funny. in the book. <laughs> but you had some great, you had some great gentle digs uh, in there about motoring journalists, and they're they're accurate too, like about paddle shifted transmissions and other things. It was really funny. Oh. Yeah, but I, I just wrote that line in there because I was thinking, damn, if I, if I if I keep having to go at journalists, one day I may be on the Smoking Tire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Got to say one nice well, thing in there. Well, guess what? Now now you're at the intercooler, and now you're one of us. So welcome to the team. And uh, no, I don't think you actually. You didn't. I don't think you dug. I think any any dig at a, at motoring journalists uh, was completely fair and earned um in the book but how are you how are you enjoying your writing career it's different from engineering and building is it not no but you know first of all man, it's, it's very kind of you to call me a, a writer but i don't think i've earned that uh, title yet um i think you so are really on page 240 of your book <laughs> <laughs> no i i really do consider myself a, an engineer scribbling really and that's what i do for the intercooler right because the intercooler um yeah, it's got a ton of super famous, you know, top level European journalists writing there. You know, it's quite a scary roster to see the kind of team. So I'm kind of the team geek, right? So I write technical articles going on about starter motors and inject fuel injection and stuff like this. So I've, I don't consider myself a real writer. I'm more an engineer who's, uh, who's, who's who sometimes picks up a pen. Well, there's. Uh, some uh, some very talented people that do that and the people who do it that we like uh you know do it really well and make uh otherwise mundane things uh seem very very interesting such as cost analysis of cars or our friend Bozy writes about uh the the fine art of filing patents and when uh, <laughs> and digs through patent drawings for stuff but uh, i mean i agree the intercooler is a heavy roster with frankel and catchpole and prosser and all of those guys uh steve yeah. sutcliffe um and and every time i'm i'm on a gig with one of them i was just down where i where i got your email from with uh, with Andrew Frankel in Atlanta driving Bentleys, and I, you know, yeah. part of me was like, and Henry was there as well, and uh, part of me was like, uh, oh great, the two reviews will go up, and one will be mine, and one will be fucking Frankel's, and his will be like beautiful, <laughs> you know, and he's driven every pre-war Bentley that there is, and I'm like, this guy was on meth, but it's always uh, fun and educational to hang out with those guys as well because. They're so experienced. But can you imagine how scary it is, man, to submit? Like, I, I sit down and I write something about, I don't know, some, like, the importance of the starter motor, right? And then I submit it to the intercooler. 
and it's sub-edited by Franco with his beautiful English. So like, I'm just terrified I made some terrible spelling or grammar mistake, you know, so it's, well, it's kind of scary. As long as you got that right. Actually, I really, I did enjoy that starter motor piece. That was very good. It really, <laughs> it made the difference when it came to uh, women driving cars, which was extremely yeah. important. And, and and it's what killed what killed the Gen 1 EV, you could argue, was the invention of the starter motor. Um, that's what really put the nail in the coffin for the, mm. you know, the first time around. Yeah, all the ads, uh, and there's a bunch of examples in David's piece, but a lot of the advertising for EVs in, in the 1910s uh, were really about, oh, like, a woman can just get in and drive it because it's like... Because you don't have to hand crank. You don't crank. have to hand crank right, this was, thing. Yeah. 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 It's but, and now it's um, such no, a, obviously a no-brainer. Tired of family members being killed by the starter motor in your internal combustion engine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from kickback. But that's actually a real fun series to write. So the, the, the series is called Breakthroughs. It was Andrew's idea. I can't take uh, can't take credit for it. But the idea is to pick the you know twenty, thirty, forty major innovations through the the history of the automobile, be it you know unitary construction, the starter motor, fuel injection, airbags, ABS, and and talk about them and talk about them the technical side of it but also a little bit the historical side and try and make it not too dry that's the challenge right because writing about engineering i mean it can be boring so yeah. the, the you challenge do a great is job at that though no, i think i think you do a great it's job very, of keeping great, it entertaining series. grounded and and not too dry i mean i i'm telling like listeners like your book was really enjoyable it was very entertaining to read um and also very educational like it was, it was just a great balance well, thank you, guys. And so if, if Andrew or Dan are listening, I just want to let you know that my request for a pay rise will be coming in uh, the next <laughs> couple of days. <laughs> uh, the, uh, we've got a few uh, questions for you from our fans on uh, the well, Patreon. Of course, if you want to ask uh, questions of our guests, get the show ahead of schedule, get a, an ad-free listening experience, patreon.com slash the Smoking Tire podcast is where you do it. Okay, um, let's see. Well, uh, Lucas, uh, I think his question has a uh, pretty, com a pretty, not a, a straightforward answer. But I'll let David answer it because maybe he'll be uh, more eloquent about it. Lucas says, "How do ultra low volume cars, such as the Hennessy Venom GT, get around crash testing uh, actual cars, but are still?" road legal. The Venom GT is titled as a Lotus Elise. That's how. It's a modified yeah. car. It is not a – that, that is not a production car. So they made a production run of them, but the, when you go to sell someone a Venom GT, that title will say 2005 Lotus or or whatever. Yeah. But there's also the – in America, the ultra-low volume uh, vehicle act that allows small manufacturers to produce – uh, caterums, Cobra replicas, and such, right? Anything to add to that? No, exactly. So there's kind of two categories, really. Uh, and thanks for the question. Either, as Matt says, you're you're actually kind of rebodying or recycling older cars. So the, the Hennessy is an example of that. So is the caterum, right? Because the caterum was type approved, you know, back in the 15th century. Um, <laughs> Actually, the caterum was originally powered by a human uh, dragging bodies away from plague. That was the first, the first caterum. They made carts. Bring out your dad. <laughs> Do you like caterums? Are you a caterum? And I know that there was a. There, there was some uh, drama with Alpine and Caterham uh, in the development of that car. But it's talking specifically about the seven and its variants, are you a fan? 
Uh, of course, I, I, you gotta love Kdrums, but and I'm gonna put a but on it. And I was actually talking to the CEO of Kdrums, he's a good buddy of mine, a guy called Bob Lashley, really nice guy. He's only recently been CEO of Kdrums. He's got some really interesting plans for the company. The problem I've got is I'm also a motorcyclist. I love my motorbikes. So I kind of always say to Bob, look, the problem is it's too like a bike. Like the sensations are so raw, so close that, you know, it is a four wheel motorcycle and I got a two wheel motorcycle. That's, that's the problem, but I love them. Um, yeah. The, so we're just saying to, to, to close off that question. So either it's older cars and like singers are a good example of that, right? Singers are officially, they're all nine, six, fours. So they're kind of, they've already been type approved or homologated way back or they're ultra, ultra low volume. There are no other workarounds these days. It's pretty strict. So even a car like Gordon Murray's T50 hypercar, only going to be 100 of them built. They've done a full physical crash test program. There's no other way to sell them in the US. Right. And that process is very, very expensive. Oh, yes, um, sir. And uh, that's why those cars are $3 million. <laughs> and caterums, I'm with uh, you know, I'm with you. They are it is very close to a motorcycle experience, and in some ways even less comfortable. My favorite caterum is seeing someone else drive a caterum like a maniac. I'm not person. I'm too too tall and fat for them. Even their um, they have an America spec one. <laughs> you know the yeah. you know they make an American version that's like four inches wider. <laughs> it's, you it's you not, are the roll cage that protects the caterer. Uh, it's not for yeah. me. I get it, but it's not for me. Uh, okay, wait. A lot of words in Joel's question here. So. Let's see what I can pull from it. To David, your book made me realize that I should really be in automotive engineering. I just made the shift and started at a well-known truck manufacturer as it was the only option where I live. I'm working as a designer, but uh, fairly eager to get into some type of technical lead position. What is a realistic time frame from moving, quote, from the bottom into higher ranks according to your experience? I finished my master's in 2020 and have a few years of experience as a project manager at a small startup since then. Oh, man. Well, first of all, Joel, that's unbelievable to hear that, that I've influenced someone in their career choice. And, uh, hey, I hope it goes really, really well for you. Um, I'm probably a bad example because, as Matt turned out, pointed out earlier, I was really, really lucky. I kind of made it to sort of big project control really quickly. Um I guess it was just right time, right place, and I slept with the right people. Oh, sorry, sorry, cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah, how is Mr. Um, Going in bed? <laughs> I hear those I eyebrows see. have two functions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yep. sorry. No, no, um, you know, I'm a big admirer of Carlos Gone, but officially he's not my type. Um, to try and answer Joel's question, so, you know, it will come. All I would say is, you know, have fun in what you're doing now, whether you're designing a component, part of a component, a module, have fun, enjoy it, and the big positions will come. Don't worry too much. Don't put a stopwatch on yourself. You'll just get frustrated and um, just enjoy it because you've got the coolest job in the world, sir. And uh, uh, part two, uh, and so he says, do you see a risk of larger OEMs having many different departments for every component of a vehicle? Uh, I feel like sometimes designers and engineers optimize only their part and lose sight of how that component interacts with the rest of the vehicle, creating a suboptimal product. Uh, examples could be packaging. It seems like EV startups are better at finding storage space than their traditional counterparts. Well, that seems like bad uh, vehicle engineering leadership, doesn't it? 
<laughs> First, no, hundred percent. What you mentioned there, so siloing of car companies is it's not your number one enemy, but it's up there in the top three. So you know the chassis guys not talking to the electrical guys, the powertrain guys being out partying. You know the, these silos can develop, and you have to be constantly fighting against them. A key role to make sure that doesn't doesn't happen is the role of the packaging engineers. You know, sometimes they're called layout engineers, sometimes they're called architects, sometimes they're called integration engineers. It's a little known discipline, but those guys are so important to cut across the the, um, the disciplines and make sure that it comes together as a whole. So if you're seeing in EV startups being really clever about things like storage solutions or, you know, just small touches that you think that's really clever, that means they've got really good packaging engineers. Mm. Uh, Tim says, have you ever sat in a car for the first time and immediately recognized the competitor vehicles that were benchmarked? Uh, the Corvette Z06 is an obvious one, but any less apparent examples of engineer benchmarking? The Z06 Ooh. is only obvious when you drive it. Sitting in it, it is it doesn't. You got it's the dynamics of that car that remind me so much of Ferrari, less the aesthetics or the cabin. But go on, David. Your 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 answer. I'm trying to think, and if unfortunately I've only got bad examples coming in my brain. Um, <laughs> That's fine too. Example, we'll take one of those. <laughs> I've got examples where I've got in vehicles, and I can see what they've been trying to do and like missing quite badly. Um, so yeah and it's often actually evs um and it's often evs trying to be too sporty mm -hmm. so um it yeah it's it's often they're basically trying to ape the feel of a tesla they're trying to do that straight line speed thing but kind of missing it and compromising other side parts of the vehicle so so yeah, I can't think of a positive example where I've got it into, ah, yeah, they, they, they've really benchmarked a came and they've really hit it on the nail. No, I can't. I can think of negative examples. Aside from the charging experience, I could think of a bunch of examples where OEMs have tried to copy Tesla and not really stop to think of whether or not that was a good idea worth copying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, like like just because Tesla did it and Tesla's popular, like let's do that. But it it's actually not that's not one of the good things about Tesla that you've gone and copied. You've copied one of the bad that's things. That's not why their cars are selling. Yeah, like, people are focused on the wrong 100%. thing. Yeah. Hundred percent. Uh, Tom Rosenbaum, uh, uh, two-parter. The first part is answered in the book, but I'd like you to touch on it quickly. Uh, uh, when designing a new car for a major automaker, were you basically handed a powertrain to build a car around, or did you have flexibility in choice of engine, transmission, and drivetrain? Uh, if you want to answer that, I'll, answer, I'll, I'll ask you the next part, yeah. Yeah, basically the second choice. So um, the Qashqai and the Alpine A110 are two good examples there where we basically had access to the Nissan, Renault, and partly the Daimler powertrain lineup, but the vehicle project chooses the, the powertrain. Nobody comes and says, oh, you got to use the 1.8 liter, such and such. So that's part of the job is selecting the right powertrain within the lineup. The Zoe is a different example where there was no powertrain. You couldn't just say, oh, I'll take that electric motor because nobody had them. So we had to go out and develop it from scratch, in that case with Continental. Um, but yeah, you basically choose the powertrain. That's part of the job. Um, nobody can really impose it on you. You don't design a car around a given powertrain. 
Uh, and part two is after having worked at Nissan, do you have any insight as to why the brand is so hellbent on using CVT transmissions for the vast majority of its production cars? <laughs> Enthusiasts do not like the CVT. No, 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 no. Um, the short answer is going to be no. I understand the CVT in Japan, right? And I understand its application in small cars. I get it. Um, what about why I, in it, Japan? What is what do you understand about the CVT in Japan specifically? You know, because CVTs work quite well in really light cars because you don't have that inertia problem. You don't get that horrible whining noise. Hmm. So in light cars with low inertia in urban situations, that horrible put your foot down and it's just going, ah, that's not so much of an issue in urban driving. So it's 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 not a bad solution for basically Japanese urban cars. Oh, that's so it's interesting. It's a terrible solution everywhere else. <laughs> so no, oh, I, I haven't got a good explanation for that one. Oh, so what, so so the so Nissan is uh, Detroiting. You know, that's when, uh, when in the 60s, Detroit built cars that were amazing in Detroit and Detroit. awful everywhere mm. else. And that's what they're doing. Okay. Nissan, come bit. take a trip to America and see how your gearbox works over here. It's not great. They'll just be shocked at what Altima drivers do here. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> yeah, Aaron Geiger so uh, really liked your book. Uh, and says, you've managed many teams during your career. Uh, what lessons learned can you share on managing and coaching big teams? Ooh. Wow. Thank you, Aaron, for, for, for the question. And I, man, if you asked the poor folks who had to work for me, they'd probably think that the number one lesson I should have learned better was more patience. Um, but I think we I think we touched on it earlier, um, especially for and I'm talking about technical projects, right? Be it cars, aircraft, trains. That point about delegation, you have to learn to let go and trust the people who are working for you. If you don't trust them and you're double checking everything, a like I said, you're going to burn yourself out. B you're going to have a mutiny because they're not going to trust you. They're not going to appreciate you double checking their work. So that's probably the number one lesson is. Trust the folks around you uh, and help them out. Learn to pick out those areas where they need your help. But if you're double checking everything, you're just gonna you're just gonna melt them. Yeah, good one. Um, I'm not sure if you'll have an answer to this one uh, because you don't work for either of the companies that they ask about. But maybe <laughs> oh, you go could, for it. I like maybe you could try. Uh, Christian says, yeah. "What would the business case be for Volkswagen killing the e-Golf or Chevy killing the Volt?" They're a great size and affordable. I think Chevy was losing money on the Volt, frankly. And um, but but I, I, I that's speculation. I loved the Volt. I thought it was a great car. Any any insight there, possibly? Yeah, I think we could have a like like you said. I've never worked for either of those companies, so I have no insider knowledge. But I think we can make a, a reasonable surmise that the E Golf really sold in tiny numbers. It, it it never took off because it was clearly a conversion, right? It was a, just a golf where they'd kind of ripped out the the, the piston engine and, and, and made a, an experimental fleet. So they were just doing tiny volumes. There was no way to amortize the investment. The Volt, I'm going to guess, was probably a unit cost problem. It, it was probably an expensive vehicle to engineer at the time. Again, remember, it was one of the first kind of PHEVs. So it had a relatively expensive combustion powertrain plus a relatively expensive battery and motor. So I think that vehicle probably lost money because of the cost of manufacturing it. 
I'm Which, by the yeah. way, is probably why you should buy one used. I think if, 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 a, if a company is losing money on the car, it's probably better made than other products from that company. Um, I had both generations of Volt, and I remember even just when I when I owned it being like, even at $37,000, they are losing money on this car. Well, it's so too report, good of a car. Reuters said in 2012 that GM might be losing 50 grand on every Volt. 50? 50, 50, 50, 50, oh, and then wow. it was a Reuters calculated they were losing as much as $49,000 on every plug-in Volt uh, that it sold. Yeah, and then buddy. a few years later in 2016, this is a report by Electric, uh, GM was losing about nine grand for every Bolt EV before the credit. So both were expensive to engineer and produce, and I think that answers that. Yep. And I think Volkswagen is – I think they have a uh, an electric golf-sized ground-up vehicle probably in the pipeline. I don't think they're just going to kill the e-golf without having some kind of fully engineered replacement. Well, well you know what? what's – What's amazing to me, incomprehensible to me, is they've now got their full ID lineup, right? So you could say an ID3 mm-hmm. is an electric golf, right? So they've got the ID3, 4, 5, right to 7. I do not understand, because Volkswagen has officially announced there will not be a next golf, right? They've said that publicly. I do not understand why you would not basically replace the ID3 with a properly engineered electric golf. Trading yeah. on 50 years of an awesome brand name, but designed yeah. it from ground up. I do not understand that decision by Volkswagen. I'm sure they're they're clever folks and they're doing something. They've got some strategy, but they've lost. Have you driven an ID4? I'm not so Have sure. Have you tried to use any of the functions <laughs> inside? I would question the cleverness. Try to adjust the temperature. See how long it takes. No, but at, I'm, at I'm talking about the next ID, yeah. so the replacement to the current ID3, right? Yeah. Why the hell would you not call that? The electric golf. Yeah, uh, I would. You if have all I had that brand that kind cachet. Of, yeah, if I had fifty years of brand behind a product, I'd yeah. find a way to keep it alive. For sure. But, uh, see, uh, for example, of this, see Ford, um, and the new Mustang is not a Mustang. Um, Sean Smith says, "What is the most? Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, what is the most time uh, or resource-consuming thing you have worked on?" that people think is simple or don't think about at all. Uh, Mm. He follows that up. I worked engine calibration for Toyota for five years and spent eight months on engine startability. Uh, Temperatures ranging from minus 35 to 40, five different fuel blends, et cetera. People are always blown away when I tell them the complexity of simply starting a car. Sure, for sure. Uh, t- two immediately jump into mind. One is what's sometimes called perceived quality. Some companies call it craftsmanship. So gap and flush tuning. So just getting the gap and flush right around light clusters, switch gear. I mean, oh my God, the time that takes, the, the iterative drive fits, joint checks with the suppliers, strip and build of cars, the hours, the days, the weeks spent in the plant, just getting that last 0.1 taper gap that probably nobody will notice, but you got to do it anyway. That's that's one. In more recent times, of course, the issue is final um, software integration, by which I mean 
it's not getting the software to function. It's not like getting the gauges to function or you know the charger to function. It's chasing out those final bugs. So the the, the time spent in getting rid of those bugs, basically the, the the stuff that's annoying us all on 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 more recent vehicles where they're buggy as hell. Yeah. And the OTA is not working properly. That is incredibly time consuming. Do you, in my experience, EVs have been buggier than internal combustion cars. Is that, and that's only my experience. I don't know if there's any data on that or whatever, but it's just been my experience. Is there is there a relationship between EVs and bugginess, or is it just coincidence because EVs are uh, are using all of the available tech, whereas some internal combustion cars, they're kind of holding back. Yeah, I think you're saying two things. So first of all, I think the EV itself isn't causing that bugginess because, you know, Sean would probably agree with me on this, calibrating a, a battery and an electric motor just as a powertrain system, it's easier than calibrating a modern piston engine. I'm going to put my stretch my head out put my neck on the block and say that, that that's true so the powertrain itself is not causing it i think we're seeing a combination of two things evs tend to put all the tech in right be it touch screens advanced adas driver aids you know um they tend to go heavy on the tech but we're also seeing man that's probably a whole other podcast we'd have to do we're seeing the implementation of ota driving a lot of that bugginess so there's kind of two philosophies out there. There's the Tesla philosophy, which says, look, we're going to commit to full OTA. We know there's going to be bugs, but we're going to over the air update everything. And everything means not just the infotainment system, but the braking system, the airbag system, the powertrain system, everything. If we go back to Volkswagen and the ID series or the Golf 8, Volkswagen have done half and half OTA. So some of the systems can be upgraded OTA, but the safety systems can't. For the safety systems, you got to go to the dealer. So that's what that's what I think. It's more that what's showing the perceived bugginess of recent vehicles. It's not the EV powertrains in in of themselves. My Ford uh, Mach E is uh, half and half as well, um, and there are updates. Uh, certain updates that are mostly feature-based updates that are OTA, and 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 some things I do have to go to the dealer for. And what we're learning about going to the dealer when the vehicle has to be updated on uh, through the OBD2 port is that that port was never designed to flow the amount of data that it really needs to update a car like a Mach-E. And I don't know, you probably know, what is the flow rate, the data flow rate of OBD? Do you know the, the flow, how much? Uh, I, I don't know the bit rate off the top of my head, but it was never designed, right? Never, OBD's been around a while. To your point, it was never designed to update, you know, yeah. complex infotainment systems. It's no shockingly way, so. low. I mean, it's it goes back to 1995. So to yeah. update a system where you're talking about gigabytes of data, you know, my car at one point had to be plugged in for three days. <laughs> that was ridiculous. <laughs> And I mean, that, to me, that so-called half and half OTA that we're seeing the, and I hate this term, guys, forgive me for the legacy car makers adopt. To me, that's kind of the worst of both worlds. What we're seeing there is, you mentioned it earlier, Matt, they're chasing Tesla because they recognize that they have to have OTA systems. 
but they've not taken the brave pill of saying, okay, you know what? We're going to take the legal risk here because it's a legal risk, not a technical risk of doing OTA for everything. So we're going to make Matt come back to the dealer for certain things. Um, so he's got to bring the car in. He's got to make it, you know, the dealer guy might not know how to do it. So this half and half situation is really problematic at the moment. And, you know, all you got to do is type golf eight bugs into a search engine and hit, you know, hit send. And you'll see many, many, many very angry golf owners saying, this is the last time I'm going to buy a Volkswagen product. And if you, if you go through, why is that? A lot of it is this half and half OTA system. Yeah, hey, that's yeah, a whole other podcast. The, bugging, the bugginess of the OTA with the clunkiness of having to go into the dealer for crucial updates and large files that that yes. makes sense. That is a that is a worst of both worlds kind of scenario for sure. Yeah, that's. And that's, I understand why. There's lots of good reasons, as always. You know, the engineers behind these are not stupid people. They're not doing this to annoy us, but but it's not satisfactory at the moment. Right. We have to find a better. Way. Right. Right. Uh, two more, and then we are uh, then we are out of here. Matt Stetler says, "How much work and thinking goes into repairability and parts availability during the engineering mm. process?" Hmm. Um, I'm going to say it depends on the OEM. Some are better than others. Um, I'm not going to mention the bad ones, but I will tip my hat to my old company, Nissan, for example. Did spend a lot of time on repairability, you know, uh, and generally you find you can wrench on. Nissans um, with pretty simple tools, right? You can do a lot with a bunch of standard sockets. There's not any fancy fasteners in there. So um, it is considered to be important, but there is massive variation between between OEMs. Mm -hmm. Some cause, some pay less attention than others. <laughs> yeah, which 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 region of Bavaria tends to make the cars more complicated? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last one, Michael Cosgrove said, and uh, this is a good one. Do you have any insightful perspectives on why Lotus and Renault Alpine decided not to pursue a joint sports car project? I don't. I don't. You know, I'm still in touch with my buddies at Alpine, but we make a, a point of, you know, I make a point of not getting them too drunk so they tell me the corporate secrets these days. I don't have any insight in what's going on there, but all I can say is I'm super disappointed because... I think there's a huge gap there for fun, lightweight EVs. If there were any two teams, like if you were to pick the two teams that were going to solve that problem, it was going to be Lotus and Alpine. Mm. So to me, it was a kind of a dream team combination. I was super keen to see what they cooked up. So I'm, I'm disappointed that it seems to have come to an end. But there's a gap there, folks. There's a gap there for the first proper lightweight EV sports car. And there's some, there's some cool things happening that I can't talk about tonight. <laughs> well, before we get out of here, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's, been a, it's been a really interesting show, and I loved your book, Inside the Machine. Uh, everyone should go buy it. Uh, first first go with the independent book resellers, and then, uh, and then go to Amazon after that. Support your local bookstore if you can. Um, but um, And we'll put a link uh, to buy in the, uh, in the show notes, won't we, Zach? Sure. Um, it's already in the thing. It's already in there? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Or you, can just, uh, or you can just borrow Zach's copy. Or I can yeah. borrow. We'll I'll just pass around. around. Yeah, we'll pass around Zach's copy. People I will I, I will give uh, first uh, – this is always turns into a problem. I don't want to say first person to DM me after this show will get the book, but 
DM you on which uh, app? Uh, Instagram, Twitter. First person email. to comment on the YouTube video that you that 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 wants the book, I will send the book uh, to anyone in America. Um, uh, with Zach's hilarious highlighting. Um, last question, <laughs> I David. Keep my book. Before we get at, oh, you want your book back? Am <laughs> yeah. I give? All right, never mind. I'll buy you a book. Yeah. I'm sure I can. I'm sure I can get you guys a couple. Copies no, no, no. We want to sell. We want to sell books. We don't. We don't want to take free books. We want to sell books. Uh, what is in David Twig's garage I, we heard about a bike but there wasn't anything specific what are you driving all right so let's get the real predictable boring one out the way we talked a little bit that i do um a little bit of journalism in my spare time so obviously as you know all automotive journalists get paid by porsche to drive mm-hmm. 911s yes. that's um so i've got the mandatory 911 in the garage mine's an old one it's a 1983 liter sc um, I've stripped a bit of weight out of it. It's coming in just over a metric ton, and it's set up for um, like tarmac rallies, which are really popular here in Europe. So that's that, cool. that's that's my baby. That's my good times. Thing. Okay, okay. Um, Points, thumbs up for point for one. Now my second car is again some weird Euro box that you guys have never heard of, but it's it's a little Peugeot hatchback. Some of you guys may know the two hundred five GTI famous. Oh yeah. Now, it's not one of those. It's the 106 GT. It's the 106 Rally that came just after the 205. That's that's the one which I was. Was it without wheels? That's a lightweight model. That's a lightweight yesterday. Um, So that car tips the scales at 800 kilos, which is about 1,800 pounds, 100 brake horsepower. It is a hoot. It is a fantastic car. Um, super rare in the U.S. There are probably none there, but it's just a it's just a fantastic little thing to to buzz around. With. Cool, that's a good one. How long All have right. you had that car? Is that is that twenty years? You or know, you I just bought got that car when, when I bought it when I came back from the states because um, they're disappearing quickly, and uh, so I bought it just uh, over two years ago. Managed to find one without too much corrosion, and it's an absolute hoot. So if you guys are in the U.K. I'm going to try and see if I can get someone in the UK club to give you guys some wheel time in one of these things. That would That'd be, be so be cool. Time. Yeah, we don't have enough uh, French hatchback uh, time. We need more. <laughs> I've driven little. the McGann, uh, the McGanns that they have uh, to rent at the Nurburgring, you know, the ones with the cages awesome. and the sticky tires at RSR. Yeah. I've driven those, and they're all right. You know, they're 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 not much different from what you'd get in a in a in like a Focus ST or something like that. They're pretty pretty but I've heard the 80s and early early 90s ones, those are the ones that you want. And what I love about these, you know, there there are blue collar sports cars in the US, you know, the the Chargers, the Mustangs, you know, the the ordinary guy and girl's car that didn't cost a ton of money, it was just a hoot to drive. The European equivalent of those are these tiny little hot hatches. Yeah, this is yeah. a, this is a European Mustang. Um, yeah, and I love them for. Every time I'm in Europe, I see one of these being driven by an absolute maniac, a 17 year old <laughs> yeah. just sending it. Yeah, yeah. And then what was the bike? Ah, uh, the bike. Well, um, I'm a long term Yamaha guy, so I just love my Yamahas. I've had a series of R ones over the years. Um, like a fool, I sold my really original 1998 R one. So I actually haven't got a bike in the garage at the moment, but. My wife is also a, a big bike fan, so she's got two bikes. And um, if I behave myself, she she lets me borrow them from time to time. So she's got a one of those little Ducati scramblers, which is really nice. Oh, they're a and good time. Yeah, they're fun. 
Yeah. She's got a beautiful 1992 Bonestock original Honda Fireblade. Oh, those are cool too. Yeah, those cool. are very collectible. That's rad. Awesome. Well, this was such a pleasure. Uh, read uh, David's work over at the Intercooler. Subscribe. I am a subscriber. It is definitely, uh, I forget if it's $5 or five pounds, but whatever it is, five something per month. And it is uh, it is absolutely worth the subscription. Some very talented people over there. Uh, buy the book. It's a great read and it helps you really understand um, how these cars get built. Um, and, and with the, the crossover, the electric car, and then the sports car, it offers three uh, different sort of uh, angles on that same theme. And uh, what a great what a great uh, time talking to you, David. And I hope maybe we get to see you at uh, Goodwood this summer, possibly. Hopefully, I'm trying to make it happen at the moment. I've got um, I've got a uh, I've got a conflict, but I'm trying to get across there. So hopefully, guys. All right. Well, if you cool. can, if you come to Los Angeles for any reason, absolutely uh, let us know. Love to get you in studio. For sure. All right. For sure. Thank you so much, folks. And thanks again to Zach for having picked up the book and for having lent it to, uh, to Matt. Appreciate that. Send it around the world like the traveling pants. All right. <laughs> thanks, David. Uh, David Twig, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good rest of your week. We will see you next time.